Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. But the most important lesson is that, you know, invading countries and occupying them is quite a difficult thing to do. I think the knock-on effects of this will be will appear in places that we're not really thinking about at the moment. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this episode, Sir Lawrence Friedman, Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College London, joins Professor Rory Medcalf in conversation to discuss Russia's war on Ukraine. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Thank you, Lawrence Friedman, for joining us at the National Security College uh, for our National Security Podcast. Like uh, I suspect everyone in the world, we're intensely focused on the, the war in Ukraine, the Russian aggression and what this means for security, for the people of Ukraine, for Europe and globally as, as well. We're recording this conversation with you for the podcast on on Wednesday, uh, the 9th of March in the evening Australian time, so I guess morning there in the UK, and we'll be um, putting this online uh, in a day or two. So I don't want to be too parochial in terms of the timing of our conversation, but there are some very big picture questions that I know You've been grappling in in your thinking, in your writings, uh, in your substack that many of us are reading. What I'd like to do is beginning with the question of, of peace, uh, of peace talks, of negotiations, which which seems very, um, I guess, far-fetched and optimistic at one level. But, uh, of course, there are uh, various overtures and conversations that could take place very soon. I'm very interested in your understanding of what that actually means uh whether, whether, whether it's peace or the continuation of conflict by other means? I think any peace talks uh, have to be judged on, on their own merits. Do they actually bring us closer towards some sort of settlement, a way of ending the fighting? But in practice, they're also part of the propaganda war. Um, they're, uh, they're designed to demonstrate to friends and, and allies that... Uh, you're, you're, you're being serious, you're, you're, you're not disregarding the, uh, their concerns about bringing this war to an end, but also trying to protect your position at the same time. And, and there's a variety of different approaches that can be adopted. As it happens, both um, the Russians and the Ukrainians have given us their starting positions, uh, which on the Russian side doesn't involve... Uh, any great concessions other than uh, accepting that they probably now can't replace Zelensky with a with a puppet government, um, probably can't uh, occupy the whole country, or they, they can't occupy the whole country, uh, it's beyond them. Um, 
so are talking about uh, neutralization, demilitarization, and uh, recognition of Crimea as part of Russia, which is de facto already. And the big thing that Putin announced a couple of days before the, the, the main invasion, which was um, uh, to recognize the independence of the enclaves in Donetsk and Luhansk. The, um, Zelensky has come up with some quite interesting proposals, quite imaginative. Um, he's, he's trying to get around um, the security issues and the NATO issues by proposing some sort of collective security agreement, including Russia, um, which in principle I think could be worth exploring, but it has the same problems as previous agreements, like the famous Budapest Memorandum of 1994, when Ukraine agreed to give up its uh, nuclear weapons inherited from the Soviet Union um, in return for security guarantees. When it needed those security guarantees, they clearly weren't there. Uh, and, the, and the Russians got around them by denying the legitimacy of the Ukrainian government. So I think there's something to work on there, but it, but it, 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 you have the basic problem that you've had before. Um, on Crimea, he's suggesting the possibility of basically both sides maintaining their positions um, and, uh, uh, and without them being resolved, which is more or less where we are at the moment, but uh, that might give the, the Russians some comfort. On the enclaves, um, it's not clear exactly what he's suggesting, uh, but I think that there are ideas there that uh, actually would bother the Russians, but it, it, as, with, as with quite a number of the ideas in circulation, they go back to the problem that Putin launched this war on a, on a sort of fantasy Ukraine. Um, and to some extent, he can get caught out by that. So if, if uh, Zelensky suggests that people are given a choice whether to be uh, with Russia or with Ukraine, one suspects at the moment when they're given the choice, it won't be with Russia. So um, there's something to, to work on there, although it's very hard to be optimistic. And I suspect both sides are still watching how military developments work out to see, you know, by and large, it's a good rule of thumb that ceasefire uh, negotiations uh, tend to be most eagerly pursued by the side that's losing. So uh, winding back, I mean, still looking at the the theory of victory from a Russian side, from Putin's side, I mean, it's, it, it, it's very clear at, at many levels what, 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 what victory ideally looks like for Ukraine. And that's the, I guess, ideally the complete preservation of, of independence and the, uh, the end of the violence. And then I guess ultimately some kind of reparation. But from a Russian point of view, you wrote at the very beginning of the conference that, it, of, the, of the conflict that it was difficult to see what Putin's endgame was, what his, his theory of victory is. Has your thinking about that changed over the, uh, over the last few weeks? Not really. I mean, I think, um, you know, it's a real difficulty in this conflict that, that Putin uh, is addressing a Ukraine that, is, that doesn't exist. It's part of his imagination uh, that, you know, that, that's nazified, that's 
um, as an illegitimate government uh, that is, um, uh, I mean, doesn't have a strong national identity that is inherently weak and feeble. Now, it's, it must be pretty apparent to him now that it's not that weak and feeble. Um, I mean, the, the arrogance with which the Russians launched this invasion has been shown up and, and, and quite devastating consequences for Russia. Um, so uh, I think those around him in the military will know that, that to subjugate Ukraine is now a very long haul indeed, e- e- even if it's at all possible, which I think given the levels of popular resistance and mobilization is, is, uh, is now not possible. So I think in that sense, he has to rethink, but he hasn't rethought publicly yet. Uh, he, he, he hasn't recanted his previous views. And I think it would be difficult for him to do so. So it, it's, a, it, it's a, in a sense, we're, we're negotiating uh, Putin's delusions. There's, there's a view, however, that um, the, the most intense uh, of the violence is yet to come, that uh, the very frustration that Putin and his forces have encountered is going to drive them to, uh, to more destructive acts and, frankly, more, more senseless and unstrategic acts, acts of violence or, or strategic only in the sense of, of um, hammering away at the will of the civilian population of Ukraine um, and, and that Kiev, Kiev could even fall. I mean, what's your, what's your sense of how the war on the ground may yet play out? Well, there's a number of wars going on on the ground, a number of separate theatres. Um, so in the north, um, certainly approaching Kiev, there are some uh, advanced Russian units, uh, but they just don't have enough to surround and enter Kiev at the moment. And maybe that will change, but it, uh, I think they would have to wonder whether they have the quality of troops and tactics to seriously uh, cope with uh, urban warfare. Uh, I mean, that was clearly their expectation that they could, but I think they must be doubting that. So that's the position in the north, and it, we'll, we'll see what happens. But at the moment, the Ukrainians have done pretty well then there and uh, messed up the uh, Russian logistics, uh, killed a lot of people, uh, taken a lot of... Uh, taken prisoners, uh, destroyed quite a bit of equipment and so on. And, and the Russians are having to replenish and regroup and so on. But they, 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 they've committed all their forces now. So it's not as if there's large numbers of reserves coming in, but it's still a big force there. In the south, the Russians have had more success, although even that's, I think, not as great as they would have expected. So they've come in through from Crimea and, and from um, the Donbass. And they have... Um, uh, made quite a lot of gains in terms of uh, their presence on, in uh, on Ukrainian territory. They've taken a, quite a number of villages, but not any main centre yet, including Mariupol. Um, and they haven't yet gone for Odessa, which again, something that was expected, including by an amphibious operation. Again, that may happen. They're, they're prepared for it. But these things are not easy if, if you're against an enemy which still has its air power, um, which still um, has um, 
some considerable firepower at, at its disposal. So um, these things may happen. Uh, the third aspect of the war, which is, is started quite quickly as soon as the Russians began to realize that they weren't going to move in easily into these cities, um, is uh, is bombarding them. These are basic, basic war crimes. They're, they're not attacking uh, military targets. They're, they're trying to wear down populations and causing enormous misery and suffering. It hasn't actually served, as you indicated, any strategic purpose. None of the cities so bombarded have surrendered as a result of it, which largely hardened Ukrainian attitudes, as one might expect it would. So, uh, I mean, this will continue, and, and it's created a humanitarian crisis, which is with us now uh, and may may get worse. Uh, as you know, the millions now of, of, of Ukrainians are refugees. Um, more are being created all the time. So this is a major humanitarian issue. But it, what it's not doing is um, affecting, as far as one can tell, Ukrainian resolve. And um, there is, of course, a lot of speculation in the media uh, and I guess in the minds of, um, of governments as well about the quite explicit um, threats from the Russian side uh, regarding nuclear weapons. Uh, this happened at a very early stage in the conflict, talk about alert levels. <clears throat> and I think there is still a sense that um, if the conflict were to spread beyond Ukraine's borders or even if there were to be uh, American and NATO intervention into Ukraine, a no-fly zone or, or, or other forceful intervention, that Russia would look to those options. Uh, what's your sense? And you, of course, I know, acknowledge you are um, deeply specialised in the, the history of, um, of, of nuclear strategy. I mean, this is a serious nuclear crisis because it has a nuclear dimension um, in all sorts of ways. I mean, one of the accusations made by Russia against Ukraine is that it's trying to get a nuclear weapon, which it's, it's not an issue. It can't. It had them and it gave them up, which is a source of some angst amongst the Ukrainians, but, but they don't have them now. Um, I think what Putin was trying to do it's, it's reasonably straightforward, and, and, and he did the same in 2014 over Crimea, which is basically say to NATO countries, keep out. Uh, when he announced the war, he, he warned against foreign interference. Um, he described his forces as deterrent uh, when, when he raised, just by one notch, the alert level. So I think it, it, the point was, was to remind... Uh, NATO countries of the risk of becoming directly involved, particularly through a no-fly zone, which wouldn't would be very hard to keep to a no-fly zone, um, which would effectively mean NATO countries becoming belligerents um, and posing, in a way, a much more existential threat to Russia itself. So th I think that's that's what it's about, and it's for, you may think it's worked um, in the sense that NATO has ruled out a no-fly zone. From my view, I, I, I can really understand why Zelensky would want something like this, um, but it doesn't actually deal um, with a lot of the problems he faces because its artillery and missiles sort of caused a lot of the damage. And um, uh, you know, the most useful thing NATO countries are doing is supplying him with arms and keeping his economy afloat. And the arms that are being supplied 
side. I mean, the um, the for example, the uh, the, the Javelin uh, anti tank weapons, the um, the equipment that's coming in uh, seems to be making a real difference on the ground. And and I imagine for um, militaries in NATO countries is proving a um, a pretty powerful testing ground for capabilities they have, uh, really showing up the Russian forces at this stage. Um, is that the whole story? Um, well, it's, it's an important part of it. Um, so the, the 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 systems that have been supplied to, to the Ukrainians are, are really useful. What is the Ukrainian strategy, uh, which has been seems to be far more sensible than the Russian strategy, is not been to try to fight as much as possible. Sometimes it's unavoidable the Russians head on. Uh, but to rely on ambushes, uh, attacks on supply lines. Um, and for these man-held um, anti-tank weapons and uh, anti-air weapons are really very useful, and, they, and they've used, they have used them very effectively. Uh, and you know, There's always, as you know, great debates going on about the role of armoured warfare and so on. Um, at the moment, this is not a plus for armoured warfare. Uh, it, it's... Um, the, the, the Russians have had real, real difficulties. Now, whether that's just poor Russian tactics and, and systems, it will be one of the things that gets debated. Um, and the point is that, that the supply lines are open still. I mean, there's some issues about whether, which is sort of confused at the moment, about whether some Polish uh, MiGs are going to be provided to the Ukrainians. But the fact is all the other stuff and ammunition and so on is, is coming through. As well as um, you know, some foreign volunteers, but you know, actually the, the, the mobilisation of the Ukrainian population is pretty imp- impressive. Um, and you know, if if you're thinking at some point that you're going to have to defend your cities, um, then the, these are serious fighters. If, if you're going to put them into into an open field and tell them to take on Russian tanks, less so. But that's not what they're going to be doing. So. Um, uh, I think the the, 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 the Western uh, arms supplies have, have really been very important. Um, I think it's been the most, you know, as important as, as economic sanctions and so on. And it, it is a very powerful image that I guess a lot of us are seeing from Australia, for example, where I guess we're we're following uh, you know the, the the media of the liberal democratic world. Uh, we're following a lot of the very uh, creative and effective use of social media uh, by the Ukrainians themselves, by the Ukrainian government and resistance and, and, and civil society. And I do guess there's a little bit of risk here that we uh, we end up believing our own narrative a little bit too much because at the moment, uh, if you put a lot of this material together, it looks as if it looks as if not only uh, and I and I buy this, not only are the Ukrainians heroic defenders of their country, but they're also winning. Um, and I guess there's a bit of risk. In, in buying that narrative too much? It is a risk, and I worry about it um, because it's not hard to be influenced by all these images of blown-up tanks and so on. The Russians have been putting stuff themselves on social media, uh, not as much, um, and you don't know whether you know, that's because not as much has, has been here. But, but we know the Ukrainians have had some quite heavy losses in some places. Um, and it, it doesn't help anybody to pretend otherwise. Uh, so, I mean, there's two aspects of this. Are we getting an accurate picture of the fighting? 
and it, we have to accept it's distorted in some respects. It's it, it's pretty transparent in others. I think uh, uh, Western intelligence has got a pretty good sight of a lot of what's going on. Commercial satellite imagery allows us to see a lot of what's going on, uh, as well as the social media stuff. And I don't. I think the Ukrainians have waged a quite clever information war in that they haven't. Um, I mean, their narrative is about um, uh, sacrifice and resistance and and heroism and so on. It's not about easy victories or sort of bluster about rebuffing the, the, the terrible aggressor. So, um, uh, and, and they've, and oddly, they've been able to do it. I mean, as you know well, um, before this war, we were supposed to be in awe of Russian capabilities to sort of flood the airways with fake news and shape all our perceptions and um, batter us through, down through social media bots and so on. None of that's really happened. Um, I mean, Russia doesn't have the internet functioning, particularly because Putin doesn't want anybody to know really what's going on. And uh, so they're in the dark. And um, you know, Ukraine has dominated the media war, the narrative war, partly because everybody's sympathetic to a country which has been invaded. Um, but the Russians have made very little headway with their counter-narratives at all. And that's relevant in terms of, I think it was very relevant early in the war in terms of encouraging NATO countries and others to give Ukraine support. when you don't go out of your way if it's a lost cause. Uh, and you know, they were convinced it wasn't a lost cause. And so this ends up looking from where we sit like a you know an extraordinary international contest of wills, both between governments and at, at a very human level. And again, what many of us don't have a clear picture of is what does the will of the Russian people look like? On this, uh, you know, it's very clear that there's uh, the, 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 not a discomfort, but but hardship that will ensue from sanctions. Uh, it's clear that there are protests against the war in some parts of Russian society, but but we see mixed data about the um, the attitudes of the majority in Russia and Putin's ability to um, to, to, to to brainwash or mobilize or, or censor their views. Um, and sanctions are beginning to bite. So what's, what's your sense of, um, of of the Russian front? It's very difficult, I think, the first thing to say. Um, people who know Russia well and, and, and know how to judge Russian opinion well uh, caution against reading too much in polls which show widespread support for the war because, you know, in, in these sorts of, in this sort of atmosphere, would would you admit to a pollster, your doubt. I think what what we're seeing are um, uh, first continuing demonstrations. Uh, very brave people, thousands and thousands have been arrested. Um, quite a lot of these are sort of children of the elite. It's not uh, so whether they're all going to be put in prison, we'll see. They're not all Navalny people. Um, so. Um, that's going on. Um, there have been some posts of um, mothers furious about the situations in which their sons have been sent into. This is not unusual in the war. 
um, conscripts, reservists, told they were going on exercises and suddenly found themselves as invaders. Um, and, I, uh, and as more news of casualties comes back or wounded or whatever, that uh, is going to have an effect. And, of course, the sanctions themselves, which have a very palpable effect in daily life in Russian cities because about 200 companies have now, have now left Russia as, as well as the obvious inflationary consequences and uh, worthless currency. I think in the end, this depends a lot of what's going on in the elite um, amongst uh, you know, in, in, in the security services, in, in, the, in the higher levels of the military, in, in the people around Putin. I mean, they must know, I mean, whatever happens now, whatever happens now, this has been a disaster for Russia, even if you know, somehow they manage to recover their military position and make gains. Um, and it's going to have a really negative effect on their economy for some time. Uh, so you can imagine conversations sort of whispered in the corridors, but we don't know, um, and uh, it's hard to tell. So I wouldn't make any predictions. It's very hard, you know, just logically to see how Putin can survive much longer after something like this, uh, you know, especially you know, when you think that his achievement in his first decade was to rebuild the Russian economy uh, modernize the Russian economy, um, take advantage of high commodity prices, uh, which is obviously he's got again, um, uh, but sort of bring uh, a, a very attractive way of life if he didn't worry about the politics too much to the Russian people. Um, well, that's you know gone up uh, gone up in smoke, and um, so I, I I would assume that this that this is the end. Putin, whether it's a, a slow end or a quick end, I have no idea. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Turning to the global dimensions of this, the the fate of Russia as a consequence of this uh, this, this reckless invasion by Putin that that matters fundamentally for for pretty much everything the global balance of power, international stability, risks of peace and war elsewhere, China, uh, which we're very focused on here in Australia. So I'm just wondering to, if if we could unpack a few of the plausible uh, global implications of the conflict, almost no matter how it, how it plays out. Uh, 
If you don't mind, I'd like to turn to China and the Indo-Pacific for a moment, uh, Laurie, and look at the, the global dimensions there. I mean, just this week in Australia, and we have uh, an election campaign uh, really uh, underway already, but not formally declared yet. Uh, national security's part of uh, a big part of the election this time, perhaps for the first time uh, broadly since the Vietnam War. And the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, this week uh, used this term um, arc of autocracy or arc of autocracies to describe particularly the Russia-China relationship, putting a lot of the challenges they pose, they pose to global order in the same boat, even though Russia's uh, aggression is far more uh, military and overt at, at, at the moment. I wonder a lot about what this conflict means for China. Uh, you know, there is the argument uh, that uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin essentially sat down not long before the Winter Olympics, signed their 5,000-word uh, love letter between Russia and China about a glorious future of uh, comprehensive cooperation, uh, was briefed by uh, Putin in some way uh, about his plans, perhaps not um, in detail, and presumably not on the assumption that it would all go completely catastrophically wrong. And China now finds itself in a position where uh, it, at one level, is doubling down on its support for Russia. Chinese uh, social media domestically is very supportive of Russia and full of pro-Russian propaganda. But diplomatically, there's there's great awkwardness there for China, uh, abstaining in the UN Security Council, looking to the safety of Chinese nationals in Ukraine and surely wondering about what this means for the Chinese economy, for oil prices, for food prices, and even for uh, the, the potential to threaten Taiwan. You know, war suddenly looks very ugly to everyone who's watching. What's your sense about... Uh, the global dimensions of the conflict, whether it's in relation to China or um, or other major powers? Well, first, starting with China, um, or perhaps we're just making a preliminary point, um, you know, a lot does depend on, on how this looks for Russia um, uh, at, the, at the end of the fighting, because um, if, uh, if Russia... You know, to all extents and purposes, has lost, um, not in the sense of being chased out of Ukraine, maybe, but failing to achieve its objective and suffering a lot of losses, showing its army in, in a pretty unimpressive light. Um, that has immediate consequences around the Russian periphery, including for Belarus, for Kazakhstan, for Moldova, and so on. Um, I think the Belarus, it's, it's, it's very serious indeed if Russia fails because Lukashenko has cast him, uh, himself as sort of Putin's Mussolini or something. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, 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 and there's evidence of quite a lot of dissent and mutiny even. Um, if you move around to China, um, you know, the, the, the one view would, would be that, the, you know, here you've got the Americans in the West totally preoccupied in Europe again. And turn you know not looking so hard at the Indo-Pacific area, um, uh, and I think that was the case so long as uh, as it was bubbling along rather than a, a complete hot war. Uh, as you said, I think China is not happy at all with the way things have turned out. It could um, you know it could, it could cope. 
if this had been a quick and successful war, as many other countries would have coped if it had been a quick and successful war. But it hasn't been. And, you know, you, you, Ukraine is not hostile to China. It trades with, with China quite a bit. Um, and um, China has not spoken as if Ukraine deserves to be subjugated or hasn't supported Putin's war aims, even though there's you know, a lot of anti-American sentiment that leads people in sort of social media and even in government in China to sort of wish the, the, the Russians well. So they're, they're unhappy about the way it's gone. I think one of the interesting questions, which is very hard to judge, is, you know, I think we're just going to be revisiting so many of our discourses on security as a result of this, you know, all, the, all this talk about hybrid warfare and uh, the sort of shock and awe of, 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 of cyber attacks and uh, information campaigns, none of which has materialized, um, or you know, there's been cyber attacks, but nothing very devastating. But the most important lesson is that, you know, invading countries and occupying them is quite a difficult thing to do. Uh, and this is a, you know, country with which you share land borders. Um, you know, a, a country that is some distance away and has to be reached by sea is a different matter. So I think this sort of idea that, that um, you know, not only do we have a sort of a, uh, an arc of autocracy, to use the Prime Minister's phrase, um, but two conflicts with which on which we've been very focused, Ukraine and Taiwan. And... Um, the Russians screw up on Ukraine. But again, you know, I think they've screwed up already. I think putting in the qualifications, even whatever happens in, in, in the next stages of the war, um, has implications for that. It would give you pause for thought. The, the Chinese have even less tested armed forces um, than, than the Russians. Um, we tend to think the Russians are more battle-hardened, but they haven't really tried anything like this before. But I mean, I, mean, I, I think if you're uh, if you're thinking about doing something like this, in the back of your mind will be, well, it didn't go very well for the Russians, did it? And if that's you know that could be the most positive thing to come out of this. I think it's just also important to keep in mind that the biggest, some of the biggest consequences of this will be in places we're not thinking about at the moment because of the energy and food uh, situations. And there's going to be, uh, I mean, the consequences of this are pretty devastating for a lot of developing countries uh, because of grain prices, oil prices, energy prices generally. And um, the longer it goes on, the, the worse that could be. So um, uh, I think the knock-on effects of this Will be will appear in places that we're not really thinking about at the moment, and of course, uh, and, and I think look, I I don't disagree with anything I've heard there, uh, Laurie. I'd note that from a Taiwanese perspective, uh, and, and this goes to conversations I've had with people uh, who watch Taiwan very closely, including in in Taiwan. Uh, on the one hand, there's a consciousness that. A relatively small power, although Ukraine is pretty substantial, but a relatively small power is, is essentially fighting single-handedly when it comes to the combat side of things, even though it's drawing a lot of international solidarity, and that's um, not going to be lost on the Taiwanese. 
On the other hand, uh, that's right. The, the costs of war would be um, would be immense for the for the aggressor. Elsewhere in the Indo-Pacific, uh, some of us look at Japan and wonder what lessons it's drawing. Japan has, I think, turned uh, quite firmly uh, against Russia. There was never much love lost there, but there was um, a bit of um, uh, a bit of you know, careful ambivalence. India is really interesting for us, and uh, Australia is a country that's with India in the Quad, the quadrilateral uh, dialogue with uh, the United States, India and Japan. Uh, there's conversations in this country about do we need to revisit our assumptions about what kind of partner India is because India has uh, ha- has really uh, not, in my view, covered itself in glory. Uh, in, the, in this crisis, it's, uh, it's abstention and it's very contradictory explanations of the, uh, the abstention of the UN Security Council its dependence on Russia for energy and, and, and weapons and so forth. So there's so many other relationships this um, this goes to. Look, in, in wrapping up, it might be useful just to hear your views on, take your pick, but a couple of other uh, countries where, or countries or sub-regions where there are already the contours of lessons being learned, whether it's in Europe and, and, and the role of Germany, whether it's even in the role of, uh, of Britain in all of this. Uh, um, I mean, India, I think, is, is um, just caught by its, its close relationship in the past with, with Russia. Um, it sees Russia as um, one of its supporters uh, and just didn't have the nerve uh, to say what uh, is pretty obvious to everybody else. And it, and it, and it won't help. Uh, I mean, it might help India with Russia, assuming Putin survives, but people are going to look less kindly to it as a result. What that means, I don't know. Europe, it, I mean, in some ways it's been extraordinary. It sort of galvanised um, Europe into action. Um, the EU has moved quickly, effectively, on sanctions. Germany has done an about turn on its security and defence policy. Very brave speech by Chancellor Schultz. Um, a lot of this predicated, of course, on the assumption early on that, that, that the Russians might well prevail um, uh, in, in a very substantive sense, and therefore you have to think about the threats of the future um, of a sort of emboldened Russia. It'll be interesting to see how much of the uh, current sort of shift in policy survives if we have a diminished Russia instead of an emboldened Russia. But, you know, that's something that that, that's still to be worked out. Um, For the UK, I mean, in some ways the UK had a good war. Uh, It's uh, uh, Johnson, well, the British and American intelligence were working very closely together in getting out the warnings about uh, Russian capabilities and intentions, uh, which turned out to be correct. So, you know, after after all the memories of of Iraq in two thousand and three, they've uh, sort of rehabilitated themselves as, as reliable sources in that way. Um, Britain was the first major country to uh, provide arms um, well before the start of the war, um, and that set the precedents for others. Uh, and Johnson and Zelensky have ready to get on and, and have worked pretty closely. Together, uh, I think the British performance on on sanctions um, 
is mixed. Um, and it's mixed because of the role of Russian money in the city of London, uh, which is embarrassing and actually quite difficult to disentangle. Legally, it's difficult to disentangle. So that hasn't been that impressive. And um, it's uh, the management of refugees is, has been pretty lamentable. Um, but you know, that, that, that's not a policy failing. It's a, it's, it's a just sick incompetence of, the, of our home office. Um, but the, the, there's been quite a lot of close working with European partners. I think it's reminded people in London that, that um, whatever we think about the EU in this case, it hasn't been feeble and pathetic. It's been pretty, uh, pretty robust. And the, you know, the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has been to meetings in Brussels and so on and, and, and found herself coordinating action with them. So I think it, it will be important to a degree in terms of potential shifts of attitude in the UK. But again, I think a, a lot depends still on, on how this, uh, on, on you know, what actually happens on the ground. But for the moment, it, it sort of invigorated um, European security discussion. And that's really important uh, looking at this situation from Australia because, uh, you know, as you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll wind up on this note, um, a big development in our foreign and security policy in uh, the past year has been the, the AUKUS agreement with the United Kingdom and the United States uh, that attracted uh, a lot of interest but also some criticism because there's always the question, well, what kind of strategic partner is Britain really? Uh, so... You know, there's enormous interest here in what this conflict means for the United States, for Britain, and for the potential for democracies to show genuine support and solidarity for each other in a in a really um, clearly dangerous world. Look, on that uh, note, I will uh, thank you for your your insights and your time again, uh, Lawrence Friedman. You're always a uh, a friend to the Australian security policy community we really value your work and your insights and uh, i guess in closing i might just uh, give my respect for the people of ukraine and what they're going through indeed support comes from ServiceNow, the ai platform for business transformation you've heard the hype around ai the truth is ai is only as powerful as the platform it's built into ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more.